<clears throat> well, let me just start off by saying that putting on a jacket and standing behind the pulpit doesn't make a guy a preacher. And I'm certainly not. I'm just a Sunday school teacher here for you, for you that are new. Um, nevertheless, I seem to find myself up here once a year. So if you ask me why I do this, I'd have to say that I do have a passion for God's Word, and it always has some important truth to reveal. All I can do is assure you that I've studied and will try my best to bring that truth to you. Now, since we're talking about truth, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here real quick. And this is a word to the students. Um, there's a philosophy in the world, uh, in our culture, that's invaded the church called postmodernism. And I'm sure Pastor Travis has taught you all about that. But postmodernism is the philosophy that there's no absolute truth. And that your teachers and professors may tell you things like, there's no truth, you have your truth, I have my truth. Well, the truth is that there's only one truth. And he left heaven and came and lived here 2,000 years ago and died on the cross. And everything he said is true. And this is what we believe. And this is what we preach. So, I guess we better actually get started with the sermon. So we're going to look at Psalm 67 today. Psalm 67 is not the most famous psalm. We're not sure who the author was or when it was written. We do know it was frequently recited as a prayer to God around the harvest time. Uh, Martin Luther, you know the guy that sparked the Protestant Reformation, wrote a five-volume exposition of psalms, and he liked 67 so much that he skipped it completely. Well, we don't skip any passages of God's Word here because we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We at Woodlawn submit to the authority of God's Word. We don't submit to culture and the world's philosophies of men. When you try to mix the gospel with culture and worldly philosophy, you no longer have the gospel, and the end result is a dead church. There are many dead churches in America today because they have compromised God's Word, trying to pacify culture. And Jesus, as the head of the church, said in Revelations 2 that He would not put up with that. This verse sums up why the people of God at Woodlawn follow God's Word instead of man. All people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. 1 Peter 1, 24-25. So let's all stand. I'm going to read Psalm 67. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, 
For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. You may be seated. I'm going to have to take a swig of water here real quick. Now let's talk about the Israel of the Old Testament. God made an agreement with Israel called the Mosaic or the Old Covenant, which essentially said, if you obey me, I will bless you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. God commanded His people Israel to separate from the pagan nations surrounding them. You don't marry them, you don't eat their foods, or worship their gods. But Israel took this a little bit too far. Israel isolated themselves, but at the same time most became self-righteous and unfortunately unconcerned with the spiritual welfare of the people around them. This attitude has carried over into modern times, and I read where one rabbi said, there are 16 million Jews in the world and we don't want any more. But Israel was called to a higher purpose. In Exodus 19.6, Israel was told that they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be God's earthly representatives to the people around them. Israel as a whole failed to live up to God's holy standard. We as the church are often no better. The church can develop an isolationist mentality if we're not on our guard. We come to church, enjoy our Christian friends and activities, and like ancient Israel, often have little concern for the lost around us. Jesus said in John 17 that He was sending us into the world. Irregardless of the failings of Israel, the psalmist in 67 was faithful to his calling as a priest to the nations. Ancient Israel did not have the benefit of the full revelation of God's Word as we presently enjoy. Therefore, their understanding of their mission would have been seen differently than the church's understanding and mission today. So Psalm 67 makes clear that if Israel was blessed materially, then these people felt like that the surrounding nations should recognize these blessings as a gift from the true God, which should cause these nations to praise and fear the only God, the God of Israel. With the full revelation of God, we the church now know that the world was ultimately blessed through the seed of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Peter, when speaking to the church, said this in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The principal mission of the people of God is to bring the knowledge of God to the people of the world. Now, Brother Lewis and Brother Travis always tell me that you've got to have a main point for your sermon. So here's my attempt at that, and I'll go over it twice. God's people ask to be blessed to enable them to bless all people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
These people groups can then also experience God's salvation and in response, worship and fear Him. I'll read that again. God's people ask to be blessed, to enable them to bless all people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people groups can then also experience God's salvation and in response, worship and fear Him. Let's look at this great psalm in detail. Verse 1 starts off, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face shine upon us. The psalm starts off asking God to be gracious and to bless His people. The language here is a part of a benediction taken from Numbers 6, 22-27, and I'll read that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them." This benediction was recited typically after each Sabbath service. The psalmist here uses the first part of the benediction in verse 1 of our psalm, but he changes the you to us. As a result, instead of a benediction from a priest, it is now offered as a prayer seeking a blessing for the people of Israel from the God of Israel. Our application is, God uses Scripture to shape the prayers of His people. The first line of the prayer contains two words which explain what God's people are asking of God. They are to be gracious to them and to bless them. The Israelites understood, as we do, that all blessings are an undeserved gift of grace from a compassionate and merciful God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The air you breathe, the food you eat, the sunlight and the rain, your family, your dwelling places are all blessings from a good God to all people, whether believer or not. Theologians call this common grace. What was Israel, though, seeking as a blessing? They were seeking a bountiful harvest. The people of God depended on the harvest for their very survival, and it was the center on which their whole economy turned. They celebrated the harvest at the Festival of Weeks with thanksgiving and offerings to God. This verse below illustrates the importance of the harvest. It's taken from Isaiah 9.3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. We got to see firsthand how fragile our economy and perceived well-being was during COVID. This should remind us how quickly God can bring us to our knees if He decides to withhold His blessings and bring judgment. The second phrase of the first verse is, may His face shine upon us. Now, this phrase reiterates what's already been stated previously, and it does so using an anthropomorphism. Now, that's a fancy word 
that attributes a man-like characteristic to God to help us understand God better. We all know that God is spirit and he doesn't really have a face, but if we characterize him with a face, we can somehow understand God better. God's face here represents the presence of God. If God's face is shining, it expresses that God is pleased and will bless. Whereas if God's face is hidden, it expresses his displeasure. So, the picture here we see is a smiling father giving the gracious gift of a good harvest to his children. We all like to be the recipients of blessings from God, but we should stop and ask ourselves, why are we asking God to bless us? Now let's move on to verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. Now we see the motive behind the blessing. Israel was asking God to bless them in order that they could be a blessing to the nations who would learn God's saving ways and worship Him. Two important words need to be defined here in verse 2. That is know or to know. In Hebrew, this means to know not just intellectually, but intimately and experientially. In Genesis 4, we see the same word used. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. I believe there's a lot of confusion today about what knowing God and being a Christian really means. And it's important we get this right, because our eternal destiny depends on it. During Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he said this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said, if you truly know him and the Father, you have eternal life. Jesus also taught that the greatest commandment was to love God. 1 John 4, 8 says that whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. We see the ones that truly know God are the ones that love God. In John 14, Jesus said that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Following the logic of Scripture, we understand that if you know Jesus, you will love him and be obedient to his words. Don't misunderstand me. None of us obey Jesus perfectly because we all still sin, even as believers. But the attitude of the heart of the believer toward God is one of submission and obedience. There are people who claim to know God, but the only time God's name, God's name comes out of their mouths is when they take His name in vain. If this is you, I would encourage you to examine yourself to see if you really know God. Now a verse from Exodus 5.2. In Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, I don't know God, so I'm not listening to Him. Now, let's talk about the next important word in verse 2. The word is way or ways. Ways in the Psalms is meant to convey character traits of God, especially those that involve His activities in human affairs. The character trait emphasized in verse 2 is that God is a saving God. 
And let me just say, your, your saving power among the nations is the phrase that we're talking about. Nations here in Hebrew means Gentiles are all other people other than Israel. It's part of God's nature to save. And He saves always out of His grace and mercy. Because nobody that He saves deserves it. Now, taken in context, most commentators agree here that the salvation that is being proclaimed is not just salvation from enemies, which we often see for Israel in the Old Testament, but salvation from sin and God's wrath, which is man's greatest need. Listen to these verses about salvation. Psalm 79.9, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and forgive us our sin for your name's sake. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Salvation is so much a part of God's character that we see it in Jesus' name, which means Yahweh is salvation. Matthew 121 says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We understand that Jesus' first coming was to save people from their sin. You may be realizing that you don't know God, but you would like to know him. To come to know God, one must first experience his salvation, which is what we've been talking about. Before anybody can be saved, they first must realize that they need saving. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty of breaking God's laws and willful rebellion against our Creator. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our justice system says that a punishment should fit the crime. God's perfect justice demands that when you rebel against and offend an infinite, perfect, sinless, and holy God, then you deserve an infinite punishment. That is eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. Now, you may have heard the gospel message over and over, but perhaps today it's a little different. You suddenly realize by the enabling of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that it was your personal sins that put Jesus the infinite, sinless God-man on the cross to bear the wrath of God and die for your sins. He suffered and died on that cross because He loved you. But it's you that deserves to suffer and die there. You understand that you can never measure up to God's standard of righteousness, which is perfection. So now what do you do? Romans 10, Romans 10.9 states, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now let's talk about the second half of this verse first. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead 
to show the world that the Heavenly Father approved of the work Jesus accomplished on the cross. As a lost person, you realize your only hope of eternal life, salvation, and knowing God is to turn from your sinful rebellion against God and by faith cling to the Lord Jesus Christ by placing your soul and everything that you are into His capable hands. You beg for His mercy and grace with every fiber of your being. Then you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and your broken relationship with God caused by your sin is restored. You can then truly say you know God and are now permanently one of His children. Now let's talk about this first phrase. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In the first century, this public confession of Christ might cost you your business, your family, and your life. So there were very few false confessions. The word confess in Greek means to see the same as. The word Lord in Greek is kurios, which means master or sovereign ruler. So the phrase we've just mentioned means that you see Jesus as He truly is in Scripture, your master. You are in turn His doulos, which in Greek means slave or servant. Nobody can claim Jesus as Savior without Him being their Lord, because when one repents of sin and asks Jesus to save them, they are turning away from their old Lord, sin, and turning toward their new Lord, Jesus Christ. We as independent Americans don't like to hear this, but everybody sitting here today is a servant. You're either a servant of Jesus Christ, or you're a servant of your own sin. Jesus said that the way to eternal life is narrow, and few find it. Now that's a scary statement. And He was talking to religious people when He said this, not a bunch of atheists. The reason for this is that most people prefer to remain slaves to their sin by refusing the gift of eternal life offered by not repenting and confessing Jesus is Lord. In other words, they love and prefer their sin more than the Savior. Make no mistake, confessing Jesus is Lord is hard. It goes against our nature. We want to run our own lives. But in the end, rejecting Christ leads to an empty and joyless existence. When we confess Jesus as the Lord, our soul is eternally secure in His hands, and He promises to never leave us or forsake us. We can trust Jesus in this because Jesus is God and is incapable of lying. He said that those who believe in Him will never be put to shame. Jesus never did say, though, that life would be easy for us as Christians. But He did promise us His joy and peace. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This shows that our salvation and the ability to truly confess Jesus as Lord and know God is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and not in our own ability. I know this has been a long presentation of the gospel, but I didn't want anybody to leave here today without hearing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do those of us who know the Lord testify in response to the gospel message? 
Jesus saves and Jesus is Lord. Now, let's get back to verses 3 and 5. Verse 5 is a repeat of verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This verse is repeated to emphasize the importance and anticipation of all the peoples of the earth praising the God of Israel. The Hebrew word for peoples here means people, group, or tribe. The Hebrew word for praise, especially when seen in the Psalms, conveys the idea of vocal worship in response to God's salvation. This expression would typically be used by a gathering in the tabernacle or temple. What flows naturally from the heart of one that, is experienced, that has experienced salvation is worship and praise of God. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he was seeking true worshipers. What are true worshipers? True worshipers are simply believers in Jesus Christ. As believers, we are the only ones who can truly worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 4, the nations are glad and sing for joy, for you judge the nations with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. In this verse, we see the people of God glad and singing for joy. They are singing not only for the joy of their salvation, but also in response to God's sovereignty in His judgment. In context, we are here not talking about final judgment, but the way God rightly governs all nations, Israel and Gentile nations alike. Equity here conveys the idea of absolute equality. In other words, God does not show favoritism. All people are treated equally and uprightly. The word guide or lead here describes the way a shepherd cares for his flock. Usually describing the way God cares for Israel, but now this care is extended to the Gentile nations. We see the same Hebrew word for God used in Genesis 24:48, where God led Abraham's servant, a Gentile, to Rebekah. This governing and guiding can also be seen in these verses. In Acts 17, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Make no mistake, the God who created the heavens and the earth has always been and is still ultimately in charge of His creation. And he governs it justly. Verses 6 and 7. Their earth has yielded its, its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all of the ends of the earth fear him. What these verses are essentially saying is that God has blessed his people materially by singing a good harvest. And He will continue to bless until all the people groups know and fear or reverence Him. It's obvious today that all the nations of the world and people groups do not yet fear God. That will only be fulfilled when the Messiah reigns on earth. So the ultimate fulfillment of verses 4 through 7 
is during the earthly reign of Christ. But let's take a time out. It seems like there's a lot of injustice in the world today, which sure makes it seem like God is not really in charge. You will hear people say, where is God with all this evil and injustice in the world? Let us be reminded that we live in a fallen world under the curse as a result of man's sin. So you ask, what is God's perspective about all of this? 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Don't be fooled. God's judgment is coming. And when it comes, it will be swift and severe. The fact that the judgment of God has not yet ultimately fallen is an act of mercy instead of injustice on God's part in His desire that all repent. You know, I I don't know about you, but I get upset when I see people that hate God and blaspheme His name. And most of the time, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I wish that God would zap them into oblivion. But that's not the mind of God here. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. The best way to love your enemies is to share the gospel with them. God wants us to realize that those evil people we want to zap are our mission field. So ancient Israel no longer exists, and the millennial reign is in the future. So where does Psalm 67 apply to the church in the present age? Jesus has made clear that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. The question to each of us as members of the body of Christ is this, are we going to obediently start helping Him build? There are three things that each of us as believers should be doing in response to Psalm 67. So here's how we help our Lord build His church. The first thing we do is pray. Israel prayed for the knowledge and salvation of God to spread to all peoples, and we should do the same. We should pray for the lost within our spheres of influence as well as the lost peoples of the world. We should pray for missionaries that have the difficult task of making Christ known in a strange place and culture while being away from their families and home churches. Jesus instructed us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is exactly what we are praying when we pray for the lost to be saved. Not all of us can go and actively participate in foreign missions, but God commands all of us to pray. Number two, we should all give. The psalm makes clear that God blesses His people financially. Not so they can build fancy houses and buy expensive cars. The abundance we are blessed with is for the advancement of the gospel to the unreached people groups of the world. We live in the richest country in the world. If you doubt you're rich, ask yourself the last time you wondered where your next meal would come from. If you haven't had to think about that, then most of the people of this world would consider you rich. We should all be giving lovingly and liberally 
for the cause of missions here and around the world. The church supported missions from its earliest days. Listen to 3 John. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So the question I have for us is, are we giving? Lastly, we're all commanded to go. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If we are obedient Christians, Jesus says we will be his witnesses. There's no option to sit on the sidelines. Why use us as his witnesses? We are weak, unimpressive, and sinful. Yet the Holy Spirit empowers us and commands us to carry his gospel to all people. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is not looking for the richest, best looking, and smartest people to carry his gospel. He receives great glory from having common people like us who are obedient to carry the good news. The urgency of our mission is demonstrated in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him who have they, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. How many of y'all have heard that one? Well, I want to tell y'all that's baloney. I've made up my own saying. Just came up with it last night. <laughs> Actions may speak louder than words, but words explain the motivation behind our actions. Lost people are not going to receive the gospel through osmosis. We have to have the courage to open our mouths. God has entrusted us with his gospel. And this passage makes clear that people are saved by coming to Christ in faith after hearing the good news spoken by people like us. If we desire to have the nation see the saving power of our Lord and Savior, as Psalm 67 says, then we must be faithful witnesses. While not all of us are able to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, we all have family, friends, and co-workers that God has placed in our lives who are not believers. If we love these people, then what is more important than sharing the love of Christ with them? Or conversely, what is more hateful than withholding the gospel from those we claim to love because we're more concerned with making them uncomfortable than we are with their eternal destiny. 
Most of you are able to participate in out-of-town missions. Some may feel the call to foreign missions full-time. If you have never been on a foreign mission, I would encourage you to go. We as Americans tend to think we are the only Christians in the world. It's a humbling and moving experience to attend a worship service in a third world country where everybody is dirt poor, yet they are singing to the Lord at the top of their lungs. Now a final word to the church. All of us like to think about the splendor of heaven. Everything will be perfect there. Our worship, our fellowship, our joy, and love of God and each other. But guess what? There's something that occurs here that doesn't occur in heaven at all. That's the opportunity to be a witness for Christ. Once Jesus comes and collects His church, the opportunity to witness for Christ and making disciples is over. Jesus said in 9-4, in John 9-4, we must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus' focus was above all else to fulfill His mission. Jesus has given us a mission to fulfill as well. Our mission is to pray, to give, and to go. Have you been a faithful witness for Jesus Christ? As we close, I ask you to close your eyes and meditate on these couple of verses as Pastor Lewis comes forward. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among the nations. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.